This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Minority Report was just a movie, right? Well, not anymore. Beat cops from Los Angeles to London are using artificial intelligence to forecast tomorrow's murders. Is every crime predestined? Back for season nine, it's device and virtue. Well. <laughs> right, yeah, we're a little rusty. I know. Well, hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris, today we are talking about predictive policing. What if I told you that we could predict future crime with 90% accuracy one week in advance of it happening? I'm talking violent crimes like homicide, like battery, assault. Wow. I'm talking wow. property crime like burglary, theft, grand theft, auto. I mean, what would you say? You're talking about the University of Chicago predictive model for crime that they just released last year. Yeah, that's right. University of Chicago did a bunch of research and they created a model that could predict it with 90, 90% accuracy. This is insane. So I know everyone has been paying attention to chat GPT. And all right. the other AI things happening, oh, right? Man. And AI so in U of I, and we are hot and back here in season <laughs> nine, and I feel like the entire season is just going to be AI. It's just going to be AI doing and this and what? that. AI yeah. and what? <laughs> but could AI help us stop crime before it starts? Yes. And this doesn't sound like any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> hey, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> the Minority Report... <laughs> Is 2002 Tom Cruise vintage Tom Cruise <laughs> Colin Farrell directed by Steven Spielberg? Oh man, can I just tell you first about this movie? You remember this movie? Yes, I do. Can I first tell you that? Let's just date me. I think I was just out of college. Okay, okay, and I'm a Microsoft consultant at the time, so I am so getting ready to go into ministry actually. <laughs> but I'm just like so excited. Naturally, natural right. connection. Like, and, and do you remember the scene where Tom Cruise walks into the room and there's a big transparent screen? Right. And he has this, like, he lifts his hands and all the images on the screen lift up. Yeah, and yeah, And then he yeah. moves his hands left, the images go left. And he moves his hands right, <laughs> the images go right. And he does this really cool thing, like a pinch movement in the air, and it zooms in on a Ooh. video. This was before the iPhone. Right. This was before right. we did pinch and zoom. Yeah. Do you wow. remember this? That's crazy. <laughs> The first thing I remembered about this movie is how cool the computer interfaces were. <laughs> is That's what you watch in movies. You're like, ooh, that's a really interesting interface. I was super into it. It was like a pretty cool sci-fi. So I didn't realize that movie, which we're talking about because it's all about predictive policing. Right. right. So I want to. It is. We want to talk about that. But like this movie had all these little sci-fi nerd things in it. Like I had a, a cereal box when Tom Cruise is pouring cereal into a breakfast cereal. Right. Like with moving figures. Yeah, yeah. Like you can. We still can't do that. Like, animate the mm. front of the cereal box. No. But it has self-driving cars all over the city on this really cool track system. Yeah, it's basically cars on a train track. Come on. 
But the big thing about the movie was, of course, that they had come up with these uh, this system that predicted murders yeah. right before they were going to happen. Yeah. And they could send cops crashing across the city like on a SWAT team right. to stop the murder as a person was like holding the knife and right. was about to kill somebody. Right. And they had stopped crime. They had pre- successfully predicted and prevented crime. I don't know if you remember the movie that well, but they have this clip where they do a fake political ad about the pre-crime unit. Okay. I want to play this for you. Imagine a world without murder. I lost my best friend. I lost my aunt. I lost my dad. I lost my father. I lost my wife. Just six years ago, the homicide rate in this country had reached epidemic proportions. It seemed that only a miracle could stop the bloodshed. But instead of one miracle, we were given three. The precognitives. Within just one month under the pre-crime program, the murder rate in the District of Columbia was reduced 90%. They were going to be waiting for me in the car. He was going to rape me. I was going to be stabbed. Right here. Within a year, pre-crime effectively stopped murder in our nation's capital. In the six years we've been conducting our little experiment, there hasn't been a single murder. And now pre-crime can work for you. We want to make absolutely certain that every American can bank on the utter infallibility of this system. And to ensure that what keeps us safe will also keep us free. Pre-crime? It works. It works. It works. It works. It works. It works. On Tuesday, April 22nd, vote yes on the National Pre-Crime Initiative. So the promise is no crime. What if we could cut crime by figuring it out before it starts? In this movie, it was this weird, creepy precog. Yeah, they were these creepy. women child things floating in a goop that like, <laughs> like they had like psychic visions. Okay, it but weird. it got me thinking. Like they were very, very much like an AI algorithm. Yeah, they were these three. They looked like Blue Man Group, but without the paint. Uh-oh, right? Weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were completely bald. Yeah, they're just like laying in this goop. Yeah, it's totally. Yeah, but they're like, okay, we have successfully eradicated 100% of crime. And that's 20 years ago. And now today, the University of Chicago is saying we can predict crime with 90% accuracy. We're living in the future. Could this be happening now? Right. Right. Yeah. Could this be happening? And why shouldn't we do it? If it's possible, why are we not voting on this tomorrow to implement a complete eradication of crime across the United States. Of course, the title of the movie Minority Report points to the whole crux of the movie, spoiler alert, that they find out that the system isn't perfect and it actually can implicate Mm. wrongly, right? Mm. And so, go watch it, by the way. It's almost (laughs) free out there. It's like totally worth it. A little bit more violent than I thought. I actually watched it before bed last night and I got a little nervous. I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> a little bit, but fascinating because it really gets into the questions of ethics. Yeah. Of do people, if they're on a path towards violence, do they continue on that path towards violence all yeah. the time? Yeah. It got into questions about government interference and the questions about can we trust an algorithm that we don't totally understand, which is what this entire episode is going to be about, right? Yes, <laughs> right? exactly. <laughs> so predictive policing. In the real world, it's no longer just a minority report. So, Adam, let's get into the details of this. What do we mean when we say that AI can help predict crime? There are a couple software packages that police were actually using. Yeah, and the market is growing. No surprise. 
But one of the earliest ones was called Predpol, as in predictive policing, not oh, predatory okay. policing, which is more what it's like. Yeah. I think they recently changed too their clo- name. Too close to home? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So predictive policing, Predpol, they use a place-based approach. So imagine like a weather forecasting software okay. where you kind of have a geography and they're identifying heat maps. And Predpol was really basic when it started. They were really just using crime data, the date and time it happened in the place. And okay. they were that was all they were using. I think it's gotten much more complex. There's a whole area called risk terrain management, oh. terrain as in place. And they, they'll look at places like education, they'll look at bars, they'll look at public transportation, and they'll take all of this information in and say, where there are more people intersecting, that's probably a likely place where there's going to be more crime. So they're doing this whole geographic look and saying, here's the likelihood in this place of these sorts of crimes happening. I see. Okay. So, so Predpol's doing that. Meanwhile, there are other organizations that are using an identity-based system. So rather than a heat map of a place, they're okay. kind of tying it to individuals. Okay, right. So right. they're looking at their age, their gender, their marital status, their substance abuse, their criminal record. And this can be used either by police to intervene kind of in the minority report kind of approach, anticipating a crime may happen. And so even in Chicago, this has happened where they would go to someone's house and say, hey, we're kind of aware that, you know, things are volatile. You are vulnerable to being part of involved in a crime just beware of that oh weird okay yeah so that's how they'd respond to that yeah just kind of a warning raising their awareness police but then also in the courts so once they've been arrested courts will look at this information a judge will look at this information and decide is this person should this person be held in detention until their court date because they're likely to commit another crime in the meantime or can we let them go This is called recidivism. How likely are they to commit a new crime? Or can we release them? They're out on bail and they can go about freely until their court date and they're likely to show up. So both the courts and the police are using these in slightly different ways. And that's more identity-based in its approach. So like, there's people on that list. And I know that Chicago... They called it the strategic subjects list in yeah. a nerd way, right? There was a, it was used in 2012 to 2020. Right. It was developed by IIT in Yale mm. and they sort of assigned people a credit score, a crime score, <laughs> which had a yeah. number of like how likely someone was to be, and this is confusing to commit a crime or maybe also to be the victim of a crime. It right. could be the same score, which is confusing. And. This was a very controversial database in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. They had about 400,000 people in this database. Oh my gosh. Now, Chicago is about 2.7 million people. So we're talking like 10% of the Chicago population was in this database being tracked. Their identity was being tracked in some way and the police were sort of aware of them. Right. And I want to say that I mean, people will talk about that don't live in Chicago. I live in the heart of Chicago. (laughs) You live outside (laughs) Chicago. People outside of Chicago often, because of honestly, a lot of one certain news uh, channel, talk a lot about Chicago and think about it as being very full of violence and crime. The actual facts are that Chicago is not, uh, if you look it up, are not even on the top 10 list of cities Mm. for violent crime. Mm. And so lots of us, including millions of people and children go to school every day and don't experience violent crime in our life, but there are. 
some really rough neighborhoods that have been disinvested and have especially gang violence, right? Where you have right. especially young men shooting at each other in really sad and terrible situations. And that keeps some of the numbers sort of scary and high. The But, well... Yeah, Chicago has a reputation, and that's the context that we may talk about quite a bit today. But the reality is that predictive policing platforms and programs are being used across the country. Dozens of cities are using them. Already as of 2015, 20 different states were using predictive policing. I mean, Palo Alto, Modesto, California, Atlanta, Tacoma, Washington. I mean, all these places are using it. Partly in response to AI getting more interesting and more sort of crazy good, and Mm -hmm. partly because the reality that crime in almost all cities went up, not just in Chicago. Right. Especially during the pandemic when it shaped the way society was working. And so people were testing sort of the limits of what could and couldn't happen. But I'm just feeling defensive about like <laughs> people understanding that cr- Chicago is not overrun by crime. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I walk around Chicago and feel very safe. Yeah. Feel without concern. So do I. And at the same time, we are concerned about the people that are affected by crime and, Absolutely. and how that c- we can work to stop that. So I guess the question is either in Chicago or I know New York and LA also mm-hmm. had big attempts at this AI predictive policing. Is it effective? Is it reducing crime? What? How does it work? Yeah. I mean, perhaps it's no surprise, but it is working to a greater or lesser degree in various places. I mean, PredPol, already back in 2011, found that PredPol's policing strategies actually led to a 27% decrease in burglaries in 2011 com- compared to the previous year. I mean, they were able to predict the location of gun homicides by about 50%. So the location where it was going to happen. Fascinating. And they looked at about 120 days of LA policing, and they were able to predict crimes at a rate of 4.7% compared to crime analysts who were doing it only 2%. I see. So their prediction was better than double what typical crime analysis was doing by comparison. So yeah, you're saying that the AI was essentially doing better than the humans could do, even the ones that were studying it. Right. And police, of course, for years have been trying to figure out where is crime going to happen. Yeah. But doing this maybe very crudely, like a map. <laughs> uh, I picture a map in yarn, which is probably not it, but like dots in yarn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> <Thumb right. text>. <laughs> <laughs> but just like maybe in the medical field where they're finding that sometimes AI models can predict better than some doctors, like someone has a disease or something, <laughs> even a trained doctor in an area, you're saying that the AI was outpredicting crime experts. Yes, exactly. That said, PredPol is more effective in some types of crime, like burglary and theft and robbery, than they are in things like homicide, which are more relationally based. So they're so it's not as good as the precogs and minority report <laughs> right, for the murders, right. murder, and- right? And apparently not as as effective as this University of Chicago predictive model, right? I see. This so new, this new one, yeah. But if you think about it, okay, predict PredPol is place-based and theft, robbery, burglary are all sort of place-based. So it makes sense that a place-based strategy is going to do better in a predicting place-based crime. Whereas homicides could happen more anywhere and it's a more relational thing and an identity-driven database Mm -hmm. might be better for that. One thing they said about the new University of Chicago model was that some of the previous models like the location models and PredPol weren't algorithmically following the logic of relationships Mm. in the same way that they were able to map 
the way that certain communities talked to each other or right. sort of relationally moved, right. just the same way that like trains or streets move people in certain flows and directions, yeah. like network theory. Yeah. The lower quality models, maybe we would just do circles or something. <laughs> and this higher quality model was using networking to, to understand how it flowed, mm-hmm. um, almost like epidemiology, like a disease-based model. So this all sounds really promising, So what could go wrong, right? (laughs) Adam asks. (laughs) There's a lot that could go wrong. And people will know right away that there's going to be questions about bias and prejudice with AI algorithms. And some people argue that AI will make policing less biased. And some people will argue that it'll make it more. I'd like to hear which side you're on. Chris, pick a side. Tell me what you think. (laughs) about whether an AI can remove police bias or prejudice. Yeah, can it fix this potential policing problem? Okay, I'm going to pick a side, although don't crucify me because I'm not (laughs) sure I like... (laughs) This is the side that I would typically pitch, which is, yes, actually, an AI could help remove bias and policing. Mm. I mean, the reality is like, Cops are human, right? And cops have gotten as far a reputa- as we know, except for the precogs, <laughs> right, right, right. And cops have gotten a reputation for having like racist bias. And I don't think all cops have this. Although I don't think racism is always overt; it's also in the system. So mm-hmm. we really have to think carefully about that. Um, but say we're using an algorithm that does have a score of some kind that says you should follow this person versus not follow this person. Like this person's more likely to be up to no good than this person. Okay. I mean, compared to a cop that's just sitting, I don't know, I picture them sitting in their car and watching someone walking across the street and they think to themselves, maybe like, well, that person looks shady. Yeah. But really that person just looks black. And that cop's experience is like, is they think they're using their crime experience, but actually it's also partly their experiences can be racist because right. maybe they've only encountered black people who are more likely to do crimes as opposed to right. <laughs> black people that aren't likely to do crimes. Right. So whatever, their only limited human experience is causing them to be biased or prejudiced. Mm. If their computer screen in their car somehow pops up a little score and says, no, that person isn't a high risk, mm-hmm. don't follow them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it keeps them from being less biased. Maybe mm-hmm. they don't do what they shouldn't have done there mm-hmm. and actually will pay attention to someone. And maybe conversely, so they say, and I'm using very stereotypic examples, but I think they can be true. They say someone that looks like me more walking on the street, like a white male that might be dressed a little bit nicer and I look like I'm not committing right. a crime, but actually the score goes this person. Right is more likely to be committing something, they might think, oh, that person looks like he wasn't going to do something, but actually I should be paying attention yeah. to them. Yeah, That would reduce that cop's personal bias and have the right person being paid attention to. Yeah. In yeah. that case, I think, yeah, an AI could help even that out. Yeah. In your, in your example, do you think it's the case that they would see someone and decide? Or is it the case that they might encounter a person for some reason and then take their license, go enter it into their computer in their car, find out their crime score, quote unquote, and make a decision based on that. Is that how it might play well, out? Well, right. I think I'm being really naive, and maybe you too, but about like how policing actually works. Because <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. And I mean, I track the stories in Chicago, and there are stories about the, one of the bias that, or prejudice, I think prejudice is probably a better word, because usually we think about bias as being a neutral thing and prejudice being non-neutral. Okay. So, right. So like, one of the prejudice things that police get accused of is like driving while black, pulling over yeah. someone that they say this person had a broken taillight or right. they looked like they're being erratic, but I'm pulling them over to start with 
based on a suspicion that's not that clear. And now we're getting into more things. And you're right. Maybe yeah, that yeah. works that more that way. And to that point, I mean, the U.S. Department of Justice, their figures say that you're twice as likely to be arrested if you're black than if you're white. Yeah. And a black person is five times as likely to be stopped without just cause compared to a white person. Right. So the likelihood that as a black person, you're going to encounter the police is just higher. Right. And that maybe goes back to what you're saying about the sheer prejudice. Like, I see that they're black and I have an opinion about that. Then also that plays then into, okay, I'm taking their ID. I'm looking them up in a system. Their score is whatever. And that informs my decision making. Yeah. And in that case, what's the Chicago database we're talking about? Strategic subjects list? Yeah, right. They said that there was a bunch of problems with it, but that they stopped updating the score for a number of years. Right. And they didn't really tell B officers, officers in the car, how to use the score very Mm. well. Mm. They weren't training them very well. So maybe like it got used in a background situation. Mm. Maybe a commander knew how to use it to deploy resources. But that B officers didn't maybe had that score, but we didn't understand how to use it. As I'm not making my argument for how this is better. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the scenes that we see play out, I'm not sure that police are even checking those scores. They're not yeah. doing that quote unquote due diligence. Yeah. The violent altercations that are happening are happening in real time and they don't even know what this person's crime history is. Yeah. To, to make an analysis. It is based, like you're saying, on prejudice and not on any sort of yeah. system bias per se. Let's hear your opinion. I'm sure you're going to say that the data is... So that University of Chicago research that we cited at the top about that 90% statistic, their actual main goal was not to predict crime. It was actually to track whether policing was biased. Oh, interesting. And one fact that they found was that crime that happened in wealthier areas led to more arrests, whereas crime in poorer areas didn't always lead to the same number of arrests. So there's a question of enforcement there. Yeah, the idea that like, when I first heard that, I was like, wait, I would think there'd be more arrests in the poorer neighborhoods. But what's actually happening is that police are more likely to follow up, investigate the crime, find out who's guilty, yeah, and do something about it, right. as opposed to in a poor neighborhood where something could be reported, but actually nothing gets done. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you think about tracking that data where a wealthier place becomes a greater hotspot for crimes, so to speak, right? And so more policing is going to happen there. They're going to allocate more resources to police that area more. Over time, that data is going to sort of feed back into the loop. Yeah. So as biased policing happens, that data gets fed back into the algorithm and the algorithm says, oh, let's keep sending people there because we're having arrests there. And Even it, though there could be like yeah. unrecorded crime other places exactly yeah and so even without police prejudice or racist policing like you can still have bias within the system generated by building history over time the fact is there is also prejudice policing there is also racist policing and there are places throughout the country where they've used data from the past to inform current algorithmic systems, that bad policing leads to bad data and ultimately to bias and arrests that may not have happened without the bad policing in the first place. Yeah, there's different layers to this, but you're saying there's how we use it. But in the core, you're saying the data that the algorithms feed on can be dirty, essentially. Yes. Like dirty data is a really big problem in these algorithms. And so they wind up predicting the wrong things. Yeah. Dirty policing or dirty data Either way, 
there's multiple places where this can go wrong. It creates new challenges and we have to interrogate and in some ways clean up both the data and the police practices. And that doesn't even start to talk about the algorithm itself, which is weighting certain factors as more important than other factors. So there's a whole algorithm in place that's saying, let's look at this identity or this location and let's give it a score of this. We haven't even talked about how that algorithm gets put together. A whole idea of the black box of the algorithm, which we've talked about for a number of years now, where even Google Maps, we remember when we did the Google Maps algorithm episode, and this was before the new wave of AI, we were like, how does it get to its decisions about what route to take? And in some ways, we have an idea in our head, which just measures traffic, and then it tries to get the shortest route. But really, there's a lot of factors going into it, and we're not always sure why it does certain things. And that gets more and more complex. And like now with ChatGPT, everyone's blown away about the experts, the people that created it don't entirely know how it gets to certain answers they're just not sure it built a whole neural net and comes (laughs) up with things they showed just a few weeks ago that one of the large gpt models knows other languages that they never taught it right yeah you don't know how it happened and so with these algorithms we not only have the data we put into it but you're saying it's as mysterious as three women floating in a (laughs) weird dark room in a liquid who have little glowing things in their heads and are predicting crime by carving a weird wooden ball it's just a (laughs) go watch the movie but it's a little bit like that we the ball lands in the little conveyor belt which looks a lot by the way like the lottery lady at the end of the thing when they spin the lottery balls at the end it looks like that i'm like someone thought of the lottery everything and then did this and it's super (laughs) weird but like the ball lands in the tray they pick up the ball and they just go from there and they don't really know how it got there and that's the black box of the algorithm and these predictive systems even if we could clean up the data even if we clean up the policing right we're not exactly sure how the algorithm gets to where it got this episode is brought to you by the truce podcast i'm sure you've been there You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Let's just think a little bit more deeply about what this whole thing is based on the assumptions. And there's other problems besides the tech. First of okay. all, the Fourth Amendment issues people talk about from the U.S. Constitution. Okay, which remind is, me what the Fourth Amendment is. I'm surprised you don't know. Thanks for asking. <laughs> no, the reasonable suspicion, like you can't be searched okay. without reasonable suspicion. Okay. And the whole idea is if a police officer sees that you're going to do something and so that yeah. what's lets them search you. Yeah. And it's been abused, and that's often what goes to court. In this case, they'd be sort of saying a person's past is predicting what they will do in the future, maybe. Mm-hmm. The algorithm told us that, 
And that's a reasonable suspicion, which leads us to stop them, arrest them, or search them now. Right, right. Right? And right. with that past constitutional muster, there's a group called the Brennan Center for Justice, which like talks about that. Yeah. But it reminded me of this moment in Minority Report, <laughs> <laughs> where Tom Cruise... <laughs> <laughs> so there's they send this FBI federal agent someone okay. to which is Colin Farrell to okay. to investigate the whole pre crime unit, right? To see Naturally. is this like really is this legit? And there's this scene where they're standing in the cop room and Tom Cruise is there and everyone's there. And he's like, How do you know that just because the precog thinks that person's gonna commit the crime that they're actually gonna do it? You are arresting people before they've actually committed a crime. Absolutely. Like they haven't actually committed it. And Tom Cruise looks at him and then rolls this ball on the table, right? There's a table between them. He just rolls a ball towards Colin Farrell. Okay. And all of a sudden the ball rolls to the edge of the table and Colin Farrell grabs it as it falls off the table. Right. right. And Tom Cruise goes, why did you catch that ball? And Colin Farrell goes, because it was going to fall. And Tom goes, but it didn't. You caught it. You stopped it. Ooh. Right. (laughs) But just because you stopped it doesn't mean it wasn't going to happen. And Tom that's Cruise the, with the zinger. With the hard-hitting lines, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's just a pretty face, let's be honest. Yes. <laughs> so he uses this metaphor of like gravity, the ball rolling off, yeah. that's inevitable. There's a physical law. There's a natural law. It's going to roll off there. Yes. Just because you stop that from rolling off doesn't mean it wasn't going to happen. It's cause and effect, man. Do we think ethically, Adam, morally, theologically, mm-hmm. that someone's past makes them like they're going to roll off the edge? I would say... The answer is yes. What? If, uh-huh. The Go answer ahead. is yes if you live in a materialist universe that has no God. Okay. That yeah. has no reality of grace. Grace is the great disruptor and it means that cause and effect are no longer connected. That a ball Ooh, okay, keep going. is not just going to simply fall to the ground because the grace of God can catch it. That's what I would say. And that our behaviors, if we were to let them lead us where they would take us, yes, fall to the ground, it's inevitable like gravity. Yeah. But grace reconfigures that whole equation. That's that's how I would approach that. You're sort of saying that grace, the grace of God allows people to change. Yes. or in, in, It allows interrupts. us to make different choices than simply hitting the ground. Yeah. And of course, I don't want to contradict that. <laughs> Uh, I do, I do. I'm not sure about the interrupts cause and effect. That feels too strong to me. All right, me. that's fair. Although we, I was taught that a lot, right? Like that. I mean, how far down does God's grace go? Does it go all the way to physical reality? I mean, our, sure, our, sure. Our, but our if true you, actions change. Yeah. There was a sense that grace was taught or like sin and grace and gospel was taught in a way the actions stop mattering. People emphasize so much okay. that, for instance, it was God, what God did in salvation and not what we do. Okay. And then not what we do became such a important point in that because- That God sets it in motion and we can't stop it. Right. That it almost didn't matter what we did. Yeah. And, and this, I think, became a big false dichotomy in sure. the way I heard the gospel growing up. And I guess I do think, you know, what we do matters, but I guess the, the more center, right? We're talking about does someone head a certain direction and keep heading a certain direction? And I think actually Christian theology in different camps like have really struggled with this question. Okay. First of all, if you do it from the biblical theology camp, we think about, yeah, this, how do folks get saved 
And sort of this Baptist, if we're going to go real traditional, I'm going to use stereotypes here, so everyone's going to hate me, but the sort of Baptist-y, evangelical, sort of like everyone gets all these choices throughout their life to to choose God or not choose God, right? Nope. And they have to have free will. Like this is the free will versus right. sort of predestination sort of language, okay. you know? And they get all these choices, and at any point they could choose for God or against God, yeah. and, and choosing for God, that's the grace. Right. God gives them the grace of choice. Right. On the other side, you have the sort of reformed predestination folks that really emphasize that God's in charge of all this. And if God's in charge of anything, it's salvation. I mean, like yeah. we got to say, right? <laughs> Maybe we're a little bit nervous about the hurricanes or the COVID pandemics, but we're for sure that God's doing every inch of salvation. So how could we say that there's anything left to chance mm. when it comes to salvation? It's mm. going to be mm. God has that in his hand, meaning that some people are destined for salvation. Now we get into Ephesians and yeah. Colossians and the beginning of them. And other people are, there's even one verse, of course, destined for destruction, yeah. which is called double predestination. And quite a few, I grew up in a tradition that affirmed it, that said, yes, yeah. there are people that are sort of, they're evil, they're rolling like a ball off the table mm. and they will fall. And a lot of others would really reject yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah, they would yeah. say, absolutely not. God desires that all be saved. Yeah. And so there's, you, we cannot say these things, and that would cause them to question the goodness of God. Yeah. I mean, I think of John three seventeen, where it says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save everyone who believed. And then yeah. Peter's like, yeah. God's willing that none should perish, but that everyone should come to eternal life, right? Right. I actually think these are really hard questions. I think we have some biblical things, but the reality is you're backing up into a philosophical question about what is it like for humans to act in the world and God to act in the world. Mm -hmm. And and not to back out of Christian theology, but I mean, philosophy like Aristotle and stuff was dealing with these things too. Right. In some of the ways that folks talk about it, these two views are incompatible, right? Either God is, I mean, it's right. all like predestined or it's all free will. But there is a whole area of philosophy called compatibilism, mm. which literally refers to this idea of like people trying to reconcile both those ideas at once. Right. And if you right. take it out of theology, it's determinism and free will somehow are operating in the same space. Right. And then the incompatibilists say, no, you've got to Choose. You've yeah. got to, it's, you can't have both these views. Yeah. And I think this stuff, it's nerdy, but it also like really matters in what we think does the past for a person predict the future. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's what all this predictive policing is sort of based on. And yeah. we're, we live in a world where we're used to seeing trends and we go, oh, someone that's gone this and this. And this and this, they take small steps. And I think I come from a virtue ethics perspective, as we have a lot on the podcast, <laughs> right. where that someone builds character and actions through mm -hmm. the work of the Holy Spirit, and they're more likely to build towards love and good works, or they're more yeah. likely to build towards selfishness, inwardness, and evil. Right. And they step towards that. So we can more likely say, in that case, that someone that has built themselves towards self-centeredness is more likely to do something that's yeah, you disliked my use of grace and sort of the physics of the world. And I do understand that. I think one of the ways I kind of reconcile and kind of create that compatibilism that you were talking about is thinking about the world, not in physical terms, but in relational terms and recognizing, yes, it's the case that God is willing that none should perish and everyone should come to eternal life. And God is actively working towards that end. And so that's his relational posture towards us in everything he's doing. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That is what he is doing all the time. And us, on the other end, we have that choice. And grace enters into that relational dynamic. 
It's God's grace that's doing that. But we do. We consistently have a choice to choose love and good works or to choose selfishness and inward focus. And into that sort of relational world, that is probably at the center of all things, if you take the Trinity to be the center of all things, that there is a relationality in the world. And that relationality is what determines the way that the world is, rather than the physical dynamics that we tend to think of. If we try to push it back to what is Christians, what do we think of like an AI predictive policing model in this sense right. of the algorithm? Yeah. The rest of the world is not going, okay, this is a loving God. In fact, the AI could start becoming God itself, <laughs> right? The algorithms could start becoming the thing that is like in, I mean, it does in minority or, or uh, like they even make this joke about it being the temple mm. where the algorithm is predicting these crimes. I mean, in the absence of any other kind of God, something that predicts these right. things right. like better than humans becomes sort of a God itself. Right. Right. And it definitely is not loving mercy or walking humbly. As I think about the algorithm, the way that it's tracking and enumerating physical characteristics, it's evaluating events that happen in a space, what person does this, what their marital status is, what their gender is. Based on all of this behavioral data, all of this, these physical characteristics, it's reducing us down to that and saying, there's no grace in this system. It's all sheer material numbers. And since we're talking theology, I want to talk about David taking the census. So you may remember this story. It's told twice in the Bible, at the end of 2 Samuel and at the end of 1 Chronicles, David takes a census, right? He's like kind of at the height of his power, and he wants to count all of the able-bodied men who would be able to be part of the military. And his head of the military, Joab, who is a very violent man, is like, are you sure you want to do this? Which is a bit ironic because David's the man after God's own heart, but Joab's actually the one who has this idea that maybe this isn't the right idea. Huh. But yeah. here, David wants to take the census. He wants to count all of the people. And so he does that. And both in Second Samuel and in Chronicles, it's represented as sinful to do so. And there's lots of conversation around yeah. why it's sinful. Right. But I think most interpreters say that it has to do with David's own posture. It's his own attitude and perhaps his lack of dependence on God. What it can convey for us is that as we start to count things, as we start to look at people's marital status, level of poverty, or where they live, taking all of these data points into account, David's doing the same sort of thing by counting his military, counting the people of Israel. And when he has that number, he's going to start making decisions based on that number. He's going to decide, can I invade this country or can I attack this people group? And in the same way, if you are using Google Analytics on a daily basis, you're looking at those numbers that represent people and you're making decisions. And in the same way, the police are taking those numbers and making decisions based on that number. What the story of David census, one of the things it tells us is that when we enumerate things like this, we start to use that in a powerful way. We have power over other people because we make decisions on their behalf mm. or for their own well-being or in spite of their well-being. Mm. As we make decisions based on this enumeration, we're in some ways separated from the realities on the ground. And it becomes in some ways inhumane 
to make those choices, to make those decisions on behalf of other people. So this power that comes from the ability to compile all these numbers. Yes. Allows decisions to be made that feeds back into power over those people in the numbers. Absolutely. And God sees that and says, you need to be really careful. You're bordering on sin. You're risking other people's lives. And ultimately, you're boasting in your horses and chariots and not boasting in the Lord your God. We need to, I think, walk humbly as we think about the statistics we're using and thinking about how we are making decisions for other people. And so when it comes to justice, in the case of predictive policing, these police have power because they have numbers, numbers to make decisions that affect people. And we, as Christians, need to be thinking about that in our own contexts. But those numbers are tempting us in ways that we need to be very careful with. If we're going to find a right way to use these kind of predictive models, what are some of the improvements or corrections we can make so the technology could be used righteously? Yeah. You know, I think scripture points us in a good direction. Our friend John Dyer, who was on the podcast late last season, he was talking about honest weights and scales. The idea that a sword can kill a person, but a scale can cheat an entire city. Hmm. And we talked about those algorithms and the way they weight different criteria as more important or less important to determining policing. And we need to be thinking about what is an honest weight and scale within the algorithmic system. Yeah. To that end, I think one example that researchers pointed out was a lot of this policing data that's being tracked is arrest data. So they're tracking arrests, they're reporting arrests, right. but arrests don't mean convictions. Yeah, They have a due trial process. One way that policing data could be improved is by anchoring it to convictions, which isn't always perfect. Yeah. I think it's better than anchoring it simply to arrest. Just an arrest. Yeah, obviously the, the objection would be is the judicial system giving out fairness as well, sure. but, but at the same time, you can see why at least it's gone through a judge and not just a cop on the data that's being recorded. Yeah. yeah, it's a slightly more humane, more relational approach. It certainly has problems. A second reality, I think, is seeing these policing systems not as a standalone solution. This isn't the replacement for all of the other strategies that are out there. It's meant to be a supplement to those solutions, and it's meant to inform but not determine. Right. A good example of that is what they're just doing right now in Chicago. Like, actually, I think just a few days ago, they announced that we've had these violence interrupters, like nonprofits that work to try alternative ways to stop Uh violence before it starts, right? Right. Honestly, police are usually involved after violence starts. Right. And this one really caught my attention because they've determined using an algorithm in Chicago, a different algorithm than we've (laughs) talked about, that there's 102 sort of hot spots, corners okay. that tend to have most of the gang violence, and that's where most of these numbers come from, right? Okay. And using the algorithm that identified recruits from a pool of Chicagoans, this local NPR article says that all, nearly all of them are black or Latino men ranging in their teens to their 30s, and they're 50 times more likely to be shooters or victims hmm. than the average Chicagoan. You sort of think, how can you say that in the same breath? But you got to realize, like, the violence goes back and forth, right? Okay. So, 
And they're, they're identifying these folks using an algorithm, but what they get them to do huh. is to sit on these street corners, huh. to go out and sit there for eight hours. They sit wow. on a chair. Sometimes they have a sign. Sometimes they wear a vest. And they just sit there, and when gang members, often these teenagers who like have a gun they shouldn't and are like acting rashly, okay. approach, they know this person. Who's sitting on the corner? They're like known. The reason why this person is valuable is not because they have a lot of training, not because they're a law enforcement officer, not because they're even a social worker. It's because they're literally relationally known to the neighborhood. Yeah, they, they have some credibility. and They and, literally have street cred. Yeah, right. Exactly. In this article, they interviewed this 26-year-old guy named Charles who's saying, hey, I used to sell drugs in this corner, and now I'm like, I'm sitting here just to talk to folks, guys huh. that show up because I they know me and I know them, he hmm. says. And... It's showing to be working. Wow. Like most of the street corners where they put people on for the eight hours have no violent crime on them. Huh. And so this is an example of how humans in a loving and a little bit risky way, yeah. but using an algorithm <laughs> yeah. could respond to violence in a way that mm. interrupts it differently mm. than some of the policing or other responses. Yeah, that's really heartening. And I totally agree. I mean, there's ways that this data could be used in much more humane ways that aren't just leading to police strategies. Adam, it's season nine, which means we're starting our digital voicemail. Ooh, yeah. For everyone that's our friends that are listening, we'd like to hear what other people think about what should be done for these algorithms if they would be used. Absolutely. Like ways they could be improved, or maybe you think they shouldn't be used at all. Right. So you can tap right in your phone in the show notes that jumps you over to the record thing. Then you just hit record on your phone right. and give us 90 right. seconds of your full brain. Yeah, <laughs> we'd love it. Send us a mic drop. We'll record it and we will feature some on future episodes. But for now, Adam, it's time for Vice or Virtue. Speaking of things that maybe predict the future or maybe don't, weather apps. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. <laughs> they work or they don't. Yeah. And more likely, mine's been not working recently. Right. My I, gosh. I mean, it's a great analogy because we all know how accurate or inaccurate they are. And that should give us pause with predictive policing. <laughs> how often do you check your weather app? I'm embarrassed to say that it might be like four or five times a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like in the morning, and then it's on my Apple Watch, and then I'm checking like the radar. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I always feel a little ashamed when I'm like trying to decide what I'm going to wear for the day. If it's, is it going to be hot or cold? And I check what's the weather going to be rather than just like opening a window or stepping outside to check <laughs> myself. Yeah. Right, I yeah. just feel like there's a layer that shouldn't be there. Yeah. But I still do it. I don't check as much as maybe some people do. I kind of like to roll with it, but that gets me in trouble every once in a while. I have while. seen you wearing some shorts in like awkward situations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> short, shorts be... in most situations are probably awkward for me. <laughs> <laughs> the weather app in the iPhone has gotten increasingly complicated, not in a bad way, but there's so much data there that you can look at. You can look at like humidity and like blood pressure and all these things. <laughs> but I mean, if you're a nerd, that's great. I'll say it's a, a virtue. I am so pissed at Apple's weather app. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. They So they bought, you remember Dark Sky? Vaguely. The Dark Sky app was a, like an app that I had on my phone. A lot of people had on it. It was known for being eerily good at predicting when it was going to rain. It would give you a notification like it's going to start raining in 20 minutes, right? Sure. Yeah. Like at your location. Yeah. Or it, it's going to end raining in three minutes. And it would tell you this stuff. And it was like not 
Definitely not 100% accurate, but like super better than a lot of other apps. <laughs> it was so good and got so popular, Apple bought it. And then, Naturally. then they warned everyone in the Dark Sky app, you started getting warnings saying, just last year, I think it was, like we are shutting this down because the Dark Sky data is now going to be incorporated into the main Apple weather app that's built in. Right, right. And I was like, okay, that's not the worst. But I kept on Dark Sky until one day I tapped it and it just wouldn't open. Uh, like it was like, we're done. Mm. <laughs> it's like they like canned it or something. <laughs> so like I've switched back to the new and they updated it with the new iOS. So like the new Apple weather map has it. It gives you notifications yeah. like Dark Sky, like yeah. it's going to rain in 10 minutes or something. It and is it, so wrong. <laughs> it is getting it wrong all the time. Oh, and I don't interesting. know. I'm analytical. And I've been thinking like, okay, well, is the location tracking? They yeah. have reduced their location accuracy for some things to ensure privacy. So I meant and made sure it has like high level location accuracy. Because okay. if you do all of Chicago, it's such a big area yeah. and we have a huge lake. It can be a 10 degree difference between your house and my house. Like yeah. people don't really yeah. realize no, that. Like between drive one hour and it can be 80 one place and 70 another. Right. Yeah. So I was like, is it getting the location exactly right? Yeah, that's on. It just can't do it. it it's gotten so bad. I have un- installed other weather apps, which seemingly have more accurate algorithms, mm. as opposed to Apple's terrible new weather algorithm. Oh, so man. hates on you, Apple. <laughs> can't even trust your regular algorithm, even though I check it five times a day. It's a vice. I think you're a little over-dependent on your weather app. Like, Thank you for saying. If, if there's like clouds, take a jacket, man. <laughs> Roll with it. Could be one of those humid cloud days, oh, Adam. Man. You just have no idea. I will say like when they alert you to a tornado watch or tornado warning, that is a little traumatizing. If you're in a restaurant and they all go off at the same time. That's true. Yeah, That's yeah. really scary. You're like, something's happening and it's a little terrifying. Tom Cruise is going <laughs> to drop in from the sky and arrest us all. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, predictive policing, predicting the weather. If you have an opinion, send us a voicemail. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to doing this season with you, Adam, where we try to stay on top of what is turning out to be a surf competition of technology (laughs) this year. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We'll see if we can ride that wave. Oh, yes.